Hey, welcome to the Greg Steer Youth Ministry Podcast. I really encourage you uh, to listen to this podcast, to subscribe to it, to rate it, to review it, to get the word out on social media. Help us spread the word that it's time for a revolution in youth ministry. And I'm super excited about this summer podcast series that we're going to be doing. It's going to be all based on a movement that rocked our world called Movements That Changed the World uh, by Steve Addison. And in this book, he talks about five keys to movements throughout history. And we see them rooted in scripture. Uh, and we actually did our first gospel advancing summit based on these five truths. So we're going to be unpacking those over the course of this summer. So today we come to the final talk of the gospel advancing summit, the fifth key that will change the world. And that is commitment to a cause. This is when Jesus in Luke 14, 25 through 35 told his followers, listen, you want to be part of this movement. Here is what it's going to cost you. I hope today inspires you to go all in for the cause of Christ. The boy ain't got an ounce of athletic ability, but he's all over that court. Let's go! Let's go! Yeah, I'm really, I'm really sorry about that. After that awesome video, you have to watch me play basketball. And uh, I was that guy. I was that guy on that team that was so bad that if we were 30 points up and 30 points down and there was only two minutes left, the crowd would start cheering. Steer, 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 steer. My coach used to threaten the rest of the team. You better hustle. I'm going to put steer in if you don't hustle. I'll never forget the moment. This is true. It is a crucial point of the game. One of the players who played that, I played that same position, fouled out. And I'll never forget the coach looking down the bench and we got eye contact. It was that magic moment. And he literally said these words, steer, move your head, Matuka, get in. I'll never forget that. <laughs> the only shot, listen, I could not do a layup. I still can't. For the life of me, I cannot do a layup. The only shot I had a halfway chance of making was a turnaround fadeaway jump shot. And I made it about 30% of the time, which I thought was pretty good. And I'll never forget one game, I stole the ball. I'm all by myself. The crowd is cheering. And I think, I, I can't do a layup. So I stop and I do a turnaround fadeaway jump shot. And miss. And the coach called me out of the game. He goes, why didn't you throw a head fake in? You idiot. Oh, my goodness. I, I was and am a terrible basketball player. But one thing I had going for me is hustle. I gave 100%. 100% every time. Literally, my coach would say, if you guys had half the heart that steered us, none of the coordination, but half the heart, we could win some games. See, Jesus is our coach. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for hustle. He's looking for that commitment to a cause. He's looking for players who are willing to give 100%. You don't have to be talented, but you have to be committed. It's what Jesus says in Luke 14, 25 
through 33, I want you to imagine the crowds following Jesus, and out of nowhere, here's what happens. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Could you imagine being in the crowd that day? The call to be a disciple of Jesus is 100%. 100% hustle, 100% commitment, 100% of the time. If you've been around Dare to Share for any amount of time, if you've read the Gospelized book, you've heard the 10% rule from the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute based on a study done July 26, 2011 edition of Science Daily, it's this. Here's the, here's the 10% rule. If you can get 10% of any group 100% committed to a vision or set of values, they'll inevitably influence the other 90%. But the key is that 10% have got to be 100% committed. 95% is not enough, according to this study. Not 99.9% committed, 100% committed. So tonight, I'm going to be asking you, are you 100% committed to the cause? We must be 100% committed to the vision of every teen everywhere here in the gospel from a friend. We must be 100% committed to the seven values of a gospel advancing ministry. That's the only way youth leaders around us will be drawn into this movement. Tonight, we're going to be reminded that Jesus wants 10 percenters who give him 100% in five areas. Number one, he wants 100% of our heart. Luke 14, 25 and 26, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me, does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. That word hate in the Greek is mesio. It means to love less by comparison. It means that your love for Jesus must be so great that your love for everyone else in your life, including your family, including your own life, looks like hate by comparison. Is that how much you love Jesus? Is that how much I love Jesus? Is that how much we love Jesus? Paul put it this way in Acts 20, 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. I hate my life. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task. The Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. I'm sure he 
enjoyed his life, but his love for Jesus was so great that his love for his own life looked like hate by comparison. And we throw that word love around a lot. But do you love Jesus like this? Do I love Jesus like this? Now I'll tell you something. I love food. I love food. Last night, man, Gerard and I were in that back kitchen area eating all the leftovers. I mean, we took a bo- I took a bowl of those crumble cookies, a bowl of them, and covered it up with another bowl because I felt ashamed. And Gerard did the same thing. And I went back to my room and I ate five crumble cookies without thinking twice and a whole roll of tortillas and chips. And my only regret is that I didn't bring more crumble cookies. If you ever see a movie with me, you will see what I do. I go to Target and I buy red vines. I smuggle them in along with some beef jerky. And then I buy a large popcorn, sometimes a pretzel. And I eat it all. And I hate it when my wife wants a red vine. I do. I, can't you get your own red vines? My son who's here, he knows it's true because sometimes he'll want a Here's your red vine. I'll just go buy another package of $5 red vines from here. Anyway, I love food. Matter of fact, we were on a trip, Deb, Deborah Cena, Phil Hildebrand, and myself were on a trip to Chicago. And we went to a restaurant. And this restaurant said, listen, we serve a grilled cheese sandwich, but it's not like any other grilled cheese sandwich you've ever eaten in your life. It's a foot long. It's got four or five cheeses. It's got brisket. It's soaked in butter and just, just toasted. And it comes with tomato soup, a nice small bowl of tomato soup. And then she said something that clicked in my mind. She goes, I've been here for years. I've never seen anybody finish it. I ate it in 10 minutes. I literally did. And then a half of a banana cream pie. And I'll just say this. I suffered that night like Jason suffered the other night. I love food. But I tell you something, as much as I love food, I love my family more. Literally, I would eat spam if I had to every single day, if it meant they were safe. I love my family. Listen, I I love my family so much that my love for grilled cheese sandwiches look like hate by comparison. But the goal is that our love for Jesus is so high that our love for our families look like hate by comparison. We love him supremely. This is what Jesus is looking for, 100% of our heart. Secondly, 100% of our commitment. Here's what he says in Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You know what? Picking up a cross in that culture meant you were on your way to die. What does Jesus call to his disciples? Pick up your cross daily and follow me. We are a community of cross carriers. We die to ourselves daily and would be willing to die for him if he called us to. It's hard for us sometimes to fathom that in this current culture in the United States of America. But it is a call that many believers around the world are making. 
I think of one of our ministry partners, Joe. Joe uh, ministers out of Kenya, all across Africa. And he was telling us a story. He went in to Zanzibar. And this Zanzibar is like a 98% Muslim country. And he was going to find an underground church full of believers and young people that he had actually trained in the Life in Six Words app. He had already equipped them to share the gospel, but he didn't know where this place was. We met a young girl named Aisha, this teenage girl that knew the place. And so although she was Muslim, she gladly took him to the place. And when he got there, he introduced Aisha to the Christian girls that had been trained on the app, and they took Aisha through the app. And she had never heard as a Muslim that God loved her that Jesus died in her place for her sins and that he rose from the dead. And in that moment, she pushed the button and said yes to Jesus. She put her faith in Christ. And she was so excited to tell everyone. And like a new believer, she began to tell everyone. She told five of her friends. Three of her friends put their faith in Christ. Two of their friends called her an infidel. Turned her in to the Muslim authorities. The Muslim authorities arrested Aisha. They gave her 24 hours to recant. But she loved Jesus with all of her heart. She was 100% committed to him. She refused to recant. Instead, she wrote a letter using the gospel acrostic to her Muslim class and sent it. They martyred Aisha. She died for her faith. The Muslim teacher, out of respect for her life, read the letter to the class. 20 of those kids put their faith in Jesus Christ because of the courage of Aisha and the message of the gospel. And they could not execute them all, so they kicked them out of their city. And those kids started a church planting movement. Last count, 40 churches planted in Zanzibar by teenagers who were inspired by the 100% commitment of Aisha, a brand new believer who was willing to die. Jesus wants 100% of our heart, 100% of our commitment. He wants 100% of our focus. Luke 14, 27, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now we've all heard about rabbis and disciples and we've tried to describe the relationship between a rabbi and a disciple, that the disciple would follow their rabbi, that they would do exactly what their rabbi did. And it reminds me of Kung Fu. That's not funny. I wasn't joking. It does remind me of Kung Fu. It totally reminds me of Kung Fu because in 1973, my world was rocked. Enter the Dragon came out with Bruce Lee. And I can't believe that my ma let me watch our R-rated movie. But I did and I fell in love with Bruce Lee. And I, I, wanted, I wanted to know more about Kung Fu and karate. And then Bruce Lee tragically died and Chuck Norris came on the scene. Chuck Norris came on the scene with his first movie, Good Guys Wear Black. I love this. This is the best movie poster of all time. Good Guys <laughs> Wear Black. And soon after, missing an action. And then the octagon. Silent rage. Forced vengeance. 
and my favorite, Lone Wolf McQuaid. These movies came out, and I'm telling you, by the mid to late 70s, there were thousands of dojos all across America that spontaneously popped up, and one popped up at the local mall, Westminster Mall, and it was Thai Kung Fu. And I went in, and I read on the business card their theme. We don't break boards. We break skulls. The original Cobra Kai. So I joined. And I remember being in class, learning from the sensei, learning forms. And what you would do when you were in your Kung Fu class is you would follow your sensei. You'd follow your master move for move. And you would just follow him and do all those moves, starting in horse dance, which never made any sense to me because I'm never going to fight a dude like this. What are you going to do, you know? But you learned the moves. You followed your master move for move. And that's exactly what we're called to do, to follow our master move for move. What Jesus did, we do. He shared the gospel, we share the gospel. He fought temptation, we fight temptation. He made disciples, we make disciples. We follow our master move for move. Paul put it this way to the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. Can you say that to your students? Share the gospel like I share the gospel. If every student that you minister to was sharing the gospel like you share the gospel, would your city be shaken for Christ? If every one of your leaders made disciples like you make disciples, would your church be set on fire? You know, tomorrow marks the beginning of what has been nicknamed the Go Month. Around the world, there are tens of millions of believers in the month of May who share the gospel. It all culminates the last uh, Saturday of May where millions upon millions of Christians are challenged to share the gospel at least with one person. There's Go Month. It's the month of May. There's Go Day, May 28th the last Saturday of May, and there's the Go Decade they're pushing for, and then there's Go Share Day. We introduced, they asked Dare to Share to lead the youth task force globally, and we thought, well, the month of May is great, and the last Saturday of May is great, but it's probably the worst Saturday for an American to share the gospel. It's Memorial Day weekend, right, on Saturday. It's hard to get your groups together when they're all out fishing, but we said, what if we did the last Saturday of every month? And they said yes, and so Youth groups around the world are going out and sharing the gospel the last Saturday of every month. I want to encourage you. There's a subculture of us within this movement that started this thing called One a Day in May. And the goal is that you share the gospel at least once a day in May to do something to advance the gospel of Christ. And I want to challenge you. Would you consider doing that for the month of May? Because you know what it does? It helps set that pattern. For your students. 
It's a way for us to practice our forms and master our Jesus moves. If we want to be 10 percenters who give Jesus 100% of our focus, we must also give him 100% of our honesty. Jesus wants us to be honest about our readiness to be his disciple. Are you honestly evaluating yourself? An honest internal estimate. Do you have enough emotional, physical, relational, and spiritual fortitude to finish the job? Here's the way Jesus put it. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began the build and wasn't able to finish. You know, I was in construction for eight years and you would come across job sites where the foundation was laid, but the building was never built because the builder ran out of money. How many youth leaders begin in youth ministry and then flame out? How many pastors start pastoring, but they don't make it the whole way? So Jesus is saying, do you have enough to finish the job? Do you have enough stuff emotionally, physically, relationally, spiritually to finish the job? I want to talk to you a little bit about this, because as we talk about giving 100%, that takes a lot of energy. And what I have discovered is that a lot of pastors and youth leaders burn out. So I believe this is a call to carefully evaluate who we are. See, I've been, I've been doing Dare to Share for 30 years. And by God's grace, I've not flamed out. Do you know why? I'll tell you this. My secret is this. I'm half monk and half missionary. I mean, you know the missionary, Greg, you see him up here preaching. My veins are popping. I'm sweating. And a lot of people that think of me think of this, this sweaty evangelist missionary fighting for the souls of the next generation. But you probably don't know monk Greg. Monk Greg is up at five in the morning, usually. Monk Greg reads his Bible. Monk Greg goes on prayer walks. Monk Greg takes a vacation with his family every year when he can afford it and when he can't. Monk Greg goes hiking a lot. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll see a lot of pictures of me up in the mountains hiking around. You know why I do that? I do that because I like to hike around. I do that, but I also need to refresh my soul. You know, I, I've never taken a sabbatical. And I'm not anti-sabbatical. I'm pro-sabbatical. But a lot of guys take sabbaticals because they're burning the candle at both ends. They're working so hard day and night. There comes a point they got nothing left in their soul. So their board says, you got to take a sabbatical because you're burning out. I've never taken a sabbatical, but I take sabbaticals all the time. I take a Sabbath, I take a rest, I get up, I, I rest, I walk, I go on vacation, I do what I got to do. Sometimes I just go to a movie just to, just to relax. So I don't know what that means for you, but I'll tell you this. When I take a sabbatical someday, I want it to be because I get to, not because I have to. And I want to challenge you to do the stuff you got to do to take that internal estimate. Some of you need to take a nap. Some of you need to hit the gym. Some of you need. 
Some of you need to focus on your relationship with your spouse. Some of you need to go on a vacation. Some of you need to get in that rhythm. Because listen, if we don't have enough stuff to finish, the ridicule, the demons, look, look at your servant. Didn't make it. There's another one. Another one bit the dust, Lord. Another one bit the dust. We have to do that honest internal estimate of our souls. And it's, a, it's an internal estimate I got to do all the time. I don't want to make it sound like I got it perfectly down. There was a time in my life where I was a mess. I was a mess physically, relationally. I was so out of shape physically as a 29-year-old kid that we had a guest preacher stand up who knew me in high school, knew Rick in high school, the guy I planted the church with. He said, you know what? In high school, Rick and Greg were both physical specimens. They took care of themselves. Rick is still kept in shape. Look at Greg, though. He's a mess. He's physically overweight. He gets, he gets out of breath walking up the stairs. He does not take care of himself. And I'm sitting on the front row. And he's like, are you a Rick or are you a Greg, spiritually speaking? And my buddy Donnie, who's here, this Italian bodybuilder that my uncle Jack led to Christ when he was 12 years old, came up to me after that service. He goes, we're done. You're coming to the gym with me. <laughs> Remember that, Donnie? He took me to the gym. He said, you got to get in shape. If you're going to finish the job, you got to get in shape. You're only 29 years old and you're already out of shape. You got to take care of yourself. And there was a time, not just my body, but my marriage was a mess. And the Spirit of God did something in my soul, and I began to work on that. And there was times where my devotions weren't a mess, and God did working on that. And I'm just talking about a process that I'm still going through, but we got to go through that process to do what it takes to finish the job. We need an honest internal estimate. We need an honest external estimate. Do you have enough well-trained teenagers to win the battle for every teen in your community? Jesus gives another analogy in Luke 14. I suppose the king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming, in with, coming at him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. You know what he's saying? He's saying, do you have, are your soldiers tough enough for 10,000 to be 20,000? So let's rephrase that for youth ministry. Are your adult leaders and student leaders spiritually strong enough to get the job done? The most likely legendary story of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was a, a real king who conquered the known world by the age of 32. But a story that's been circulated about him and his soldiers, he was going from city to city, conquering city after city. And he took a delegation of soldiers up a hill where there was a well-fortified castle on this hill. And he told this, this king, uh, you need to open the gates and just let us conquer you. Uh, otherwise, we're going to attack. And this well-fortified city said, you, you'll never get in here with that small delegation of soldiers. And Alexander the Great, commanded his men to turn toward the cliff. And in a single file line, he said, march. 
And they marched. And one by one by one, they fell over that cliff to their deaths. And then he said, halt, after about 10 fell. And he looked up to the king and he said, are you sure you want to fight this caliber of soldier? And they opened the gate and surrendered. This is the kind of commitment that God is looking for. He wants 100%, not just of us, but of our students. And do you have that? If not, what's your plan to get that? And finally, 100% of our sacrifice. Luke 14, 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. What are you willing to give up to get the job done? I think of Donovan and Chantel. Donovan, Chantel, I love this couple. Donovan's the one I met in, in Israel who was using Dare to Share materials. Donovan from South Africa ran a, a national ministry when we met. And I shared with Donovan the vision of Dare to Share and the tools of Dare to Share and the strategy of Dare to Share. And he was all in. He had been using the evangelism, but he got the overall strategy, got the seven values and he bought off. So he did something. He did something. He sacrificed. He resigned his position as his leader of a national ministry to start Go Live Dare, which is basically... Dare to share a South Africa. Because pretty much all Donovan uses is dare to share material to train South African teenagers and South African youth leaders. He gave it all up and then he launched out and started launching Go Live Dares all over Africa. I think at last count, there's something like 12 countries represented by Go Live Dare because Donovan was willing to make that sacrifice. Matter of fact, Donovan came to the U.S. for a quick tour and then he went back. And when he went back, he didn't go back to South Africa. He went back to Italy. He's given up his homeland of Africa, South Africa, to start Go Live Dare in Europe. This is a man who's willing to burn the ships, to sacrifice for the sake of the cause. You cut him, he bleeds lost souls. What are you willing to give up? Are you willing to sacrifice 100% to give Jesus 100% of your heart, commitment, focus, honesty, and sacrifice? Why? Why would you do that? Because of the urgency of the mission. There are 1 billion teenagers in this world. You've already heard the stat. 1 billion teens lined up 7.5 times around the world. And in my mind, I see that line is moving. Moving step by step toward their eternal destination. Because most of these teens do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. When I was in high school, I heard an illustration from Amy Carmichael that so moved me. 
but didn't really fit our current cultural context. So I rewrote it. And I want to share with you this dramatic presentation, this dramatic reading. And I want you to imagine this scene with me. Imagine standing in a crowded church on Sunday morning. The band is especially on that day and everyone is singing at the top of their lungs. Every strum of the guitar, every beat of the drum, every note of the keyboards, every sound from every voice is pitch perfect. It feels like you're in heaven singing with the angels around the very throne of God. But then you hear it. Something off tune, something that doesn't sound quite right. You look around and try to pinpoint where the errant sound is coming from, but you can't quite nail it down. Then you realize that the sound is a bit muffled and it doesn't sound like a song at all. It sounds like distant screams. A bit alarmed, you get up from your seat and you make your way down the middle aisle, getting a few glares from the worshipers for distracting them from their time of praise. When you push open the doors and step into the lobby of the church, you can hear the screams more distinctly now. You realize it's not just one scream, it's one scream after another. And you realize that each scream has a distinct sound coming from a different person. You scan the church lobby, but there's nobody there but a handful of people getting coffee, headed toward the restrooms, chatting on the couches. You rush to the large window that oversees the beautiful hill upon which the church has been built. And just as your eyes adjust to the brightness of the sun, you're shocked by what you see. It's a line of teenagers marching slowly in a single file line in the same direction, up the hill. That's when you remember the cliff. The church was built on the top of a hill next to a giant cliff, and these teenagers, for some reason, are walking toward it and then plunging over it to their deaths. You run outside and start screaming for them to stop, but almost oblivious to you, they keep shuffling forward in a single file line toward the edge. You don't understand as you scream louder and louder for them to stop, but they just keep surging forward toward their destruction. You rush to the front of the line and start trying to pull them out of line, begging them to stop walking, but they just keep steadily moving forward. You see the look on their faces when they take that first step into thin air. The moment they realize they're going to fall to their deaths, it's a look of absolute horror. Then you look in their eyes and you see they're clouded. Like a thunderbolt, you realize these teenagers are blind. They can't see. They're just following the line of their peers to their ultimate peril. So you try all the harder to pull them out of line. But when you finally wrestle one to the ground and go to rescue another, the one you wrestle down gets up almost by some unseen dark instinct and gets back into the line. One by one, these teenagers are drawn over this cliff like a powerful insidious magnet, dragging them over the cliff to their destruction. After minutes of trying to get them out of line, you collapse to the ground, exhausted. And then you hear it. You really hear it for the first time. You hear their screams, now fully unmuffled. You hear their shrieks as they fall to their deaths below. It's a sound of utter terror. This sound rips through your soul like a lightning bolt of urgency and fills your body with holy adrenaline. You must get others to help you. You must get those packed inside the worship service to come out to the cliff in front of the church to help you rescue these teens. So you run toward the church, temporarily leaving the steady stream of screams behind you to go recruit rescuers. You run through the front doors of the church and breathlessly announce, I need your help as loudly as you can. But nobody seems to hear you put your hands to your knees and gather in as much air as you, you can into your burning lungs and yell, everyone, I need your help right now. With that, everyone in the lobby of the large church stops and looks at you. 
There's a long line of teenagers headed over that cliff to their death. You say, pointing through the window at these teens, we must stop them. Get out there and start taking teens from the line right now. I'll go inside the auditorium to get everyone else to help. After a brief pause, everyone in the church lobby goes back to what they were doing before you came in. The people making coffee, keep making it. The congregants drinking coffee, keep drinking it. Those chatting on the couches in the lobby start chatting again. Did you not hear what I said? You yell in unbelief, but nobody stops, not even for a second. They just keep doing what they were doing. So you rush into the church auditorium, pushing past the smiling person, handing out the church bulletins. You yell, everyone, we have an emergency. I need your help right away. But the worship is so loud that nobody seems to hear you. They just keep singing. You rush toward the stage and jump up on the stage as fast as you can before anyone can stop you. Without hesitating, you grab the microphone of the lead worship singer. When you do, the music abruptly stops. Without hesitating, you yell into the microphone, everyone, we have an emergency. There's a long line of teens who are plunging to their deaths over the cliff just right outside. I need your help. Who will help me join? Who will join me in saving them, you ask. But everyone is stunned, looking at you with expressions of frustration. Frustration that you dare to interrupt their worship experience. By this time, two big ushers come on stage, grab you by the arms to take you away, but you won't be stopped. You yell to the crowd, can't you hear their screams? And they could. Because without the praise songs blaring, the shrieks were clear, distinct, and as agonizing as ever. As the ushers drag you off stage and down the center aisle, the lead worship guitarist strums a chord from the song you had interrupted. When he does, the crowd cheers. The lead singer steps back to the microphone and starts where she left off, and the crowd joins in, singing even louder to drown out the shrieks just outside their door and to drown out your screams. As the ushers drag you out of the auditorium, you just keep screaming, can't you hear them? Don't you care? But the crowd just keeps on singing, not even glancing towards you as you're taken out of the sanctuary. The two ushers push you into the lobby and shut the doors behind them and stand in front of them like two centurions, making sure you won't enter again. Defeated and exhausted, you shuffle over to an empty couch and collapse. Now you can hear the two competing and contradictory sounds clearly. In one ear, you hear the worship of the callous church. In the other ear, you hear the screams of a generation headed over the cliff to their deaths. You bury your hands in your face and you just begin to weep. You weep because of these teenagers. You weep because of an apathetic church. But just then you feel a tap on your shoulder. It's a seventh grade boy who with tears in his eyes says, I hear the screams, mister. I'll help you. Behind him is an 11th grade girl with a group of her friends with tears streaming down her face. She says, us too. Beside them is a middle-aged couple who says, we'll join you. A small crowd of 20 or so teens and adults followed you out of the auditorium because they too heard the screams. You jumped to your feet with renewed excitement. Let's go, you yell as you all run toward the door. The mission is urgent. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go back to our churches and call them out. Because I believe within every church, there are, there are teenagers and there are adults ready to be called out. Let's go back to our church and call them out. Because I believe in our church and our youth group, there's 10 percenters ready to be called out. They're ready to join us. How many 
many of you are ready to go back after this weekend and say, you know what? We're going to do what it takes to rescue as many teens as we possibly can to rescue them from the flames of hell. How many of you guys are ready to go in 100% of your focus and your heart and your commitment? I don't believe you. How many of you guys are ready to do this? Are you guys ready? And this is where we got to be careful. Because you knew who else was ready? Peter. Matthew 26, then Jesus told him this very night, all of you will fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. I want to tell you, it's so easy to come to an event like this and say, I want to give 100%. I'm all in. And then you go back and something happens and you're back in it. Again, the system and the rhythm. Listen, to truly be a 10%er who gives 100%, it's impossible unless we're 100% reliant on the Holy Spirit to allow the life of Christ to flow through us. Our only victory, the only way we can be 10%ers who give 100% is through the power of person of Christ. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. John 15.5, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It is through Christ that we're gonna be able to give 100%. So I wanna challenge you to have 100% commitment to a cause, 100% commitment, 100% of your heart, 100% of your focus, 100% of your honesty, and 100% dependence on the Spirit of God. Major Ian Thomas, the founder of Torchbearers, came to this realization in his life. Finally realized that all of his efforts of giving 100% had fallen and failed. He finally realized, I can't, but you can. We can't, but he can through us. So we make this commitment, knowing the only way we can do this is through the power of the Holy Spirit of God who dwells inside of us. This urgent mission to rescue those from the flames, to snatch them from the cliff is going to be done through the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. I hope you were inspired by today's talk and our challenge is this. Would you become a gospel advancing leader? There is a movement that's changing the world. Jesus is our gospel advancing leader, but I want to define for you, what does that mean for you as a youth leader, a leader of youth? What is a gospel advancing leader? It's this, one who personally shares the gospel and mobilizes teenagers to do the same. So I challenge you to make that commitment. How do you do that? Go to gospeladvancing.org and click join now. And when you do that, you just, you come in to this fraternity of youth leaders and pastors and moms and dads and even teenagers that are saying, yes, we're going to personally share the gospel. We're going to mobilize teenagers to do the same. Listen, this whole movement is about changing the world. And what's going to do that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who does it faster than anybody? Teenagers. They come to Christ quicker. They spread the gospel faster. So I hope you've enjoyed today's episode uh, of the Greg Steer Youth Ministry Podcast. And remember, a youth ministry that changes the world is one that advances the gospel of Christ.